1: This is DeRay, and welcome to Ponte of the People. On this episode, we are joined by Representative Yvette Clark in New York City. I know that there has to be something done to
2: truly get to the root of the dehumanization of Black people and communities, and that the police have a role to play in changing this dynamic.
1: And then we have the news, as usual, with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam. Before we get started, I recently did a talk in a middle school classroom with 5th and 6th graders in Harlem and it wasn't really a talk it was sort of like a talk back we all read a book we read this book Ghost Boys which was very good and we had a conversation about it and it reminded me that young people know about the world around them they know they have experienced it they have thoughts about it they have ideas they have opinions what we have to do is help create an entrance for them and what the book did that was so interesting is like it was a really great entrance that created a platform for us to talk about an issue like police violence and safety in communities that was actually really robust. So the message this week is, remember that so much of our work is to create entrances for people uh, so they can shine and so they can participate. The youngest amongst us have ideas, the oldest amongst us have ideas, and people just need a way in. Let's go.
3: Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett, at Pack Yeti on all social media.
4: And this is Clint Smith, at Clint Smith III. And this is Sam Yangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram.
3: Aye, aye, aye.
1: And this is Duray at Dre D R E Y on Twitter.
3: Um, I want to give a belated birthday shout-out to my mom. We had a great time in D.C. this weekend. We saw every museum that had black people in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and she had a good old time. <laughs> So
5: you was at like two museums?
3: Right. Uh, Yes. Actually, yes. It was the National (laughs) Portrait Gallery. I took her to see the Obama portraits and the Henrietta Lacks portrait. Um, which is amazing, by the way, but also her family deserves restitution. Um, and then of course took her to the, took her and her husband and my aunt and her, and my uncle who were also in town to the Blacksonian and surprised her with my little brother who she didn't know was coming in town. And it was funny because we were leaving the sports memorabilia section at the Blacksonian and a friend of the pod recognized me and then he recognized my brother and he was like, yo, I heard you on the pod too for your sister's birthday. So my brother had like a brief brush <laughs> (laughs) with fame, and it was very, very cute.
1: That's awesome. (laughs) That's great.
3: That's Um, cool. But I probably had a better weekend than Drake did, so, you know, there's that.
1: Ooh.
5: Man.
3: (laughs) Even though I caught a cold.
5: (laughs) I think we all had a better weekend than Drake did.
1: Talk about a loss. He really lost. Who thought that Drake would ever lose a rap battle?
5: My man put out a press statement in the form of an Instagram note on his as an Instagram story, which essentially is like, you know, hey, every I know we're all enjoying the circus, but I want to clarify some things. Like, you don't—I I was looking at it, and I was like, that doesn't look like 16 bars that rhyme to me. But, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm mistaken. But you, once you do that, you've conceded. You lost.
3: But listen, the evolution of this was, I think, what was most astounding to me, right? So— A lot of people, I would say probably who are mainstream rap fans, know Drake and don't know Pusha T, right? Like, if you are not a straight-up hip-hop fan, you don't know Pusha T. You probably have never heard of the clips. So, like, it was brilliant marketing to diss one of the biggest names in hip-hop on your album. So everybody's talking about Pusha T's album. Real hip-hop heads say the album is great. But he's talking about Drake on the album. And then, of course, Drake is going to have to come back with a diss track. He did that with Meek Mill a few summers ago. Glad you're free, Meek. But, you know, Drake did come for you. Um, And and now, of course, Drake has to come back for Pusha T. So he does. And he basically, for those who didn't hear the diss track, says, you can send me an invoice for these extra records that I just sold for you. Right. Because lots of people, you know, wouldn't have heard of of Mm -hmm. you unless I came back at you. Which was a great move. So Pusha T is like. Pusha T is like, send me the invoice. So Drake posts the invoice on his on his Instagram, which is like clever and witty. And I was like, this, these are the petty goals all day I was long. Here for it. And it just went from zero to 60, right? Like it was cute and funny. And then Pusha T was like, Hi, Drake, here's a picture of you in blackface. Also, you are hiding a child. And I was like, whoa, we just went so fast to the other end of the spectrum here. It's like, there have never been any rules in rap beefs, but this just, I mean, this really took the cake
4: Yeah, I mean it was pretty wild. What I didn't know that I just learned was how this beef like started all the way back in I think it was like 2006, mm-hmm. and it started between Clips, which Pusha T was a part of, and Lil Wayne. And at that time, you know, Lil Wayne, Young Money, that's where like Drake came up. And so at that time, it really started over Bapes, Streetwear, Bathing Ape's. And so apparently, Clips and Pharrell were wearing Bapes a lot. And that was like part of, really, Pharrell's brand. I don't know how like Clips, like Clips claimed that that was their brand, but it really wasn't. But anyway, so Wayne was photographed wearing vapes, uh, I think on the cover of uh, some magazine. And then Clips came after Wayne for, quote-unquote, copying their style. Mm. And that was the start of the beef. Then Wayne responded to Clips, saying that he sort of made the style hot. And then that's really where it all started. And now, fast forward to 2018, 12 years later, and you have uh, Pusha T putting out pictures of Drake in a Jim Crow shirt and in blackface, talking about that he has a child that he's been hiding this whole time. So, you know, it's kind of a wild story, but um, that's rap.
3: So, we went from hoodies to denied paternity in the matter of a couple of years. That's essentially the summary version. um, And I, for one, am overwhelmed by the amount of new information that we have supposedly gotten. How quickly it all came at us. Uh, And I just, I'm like, that might have been too far. That just might have been too far.
5: Well, it brings up an interesting question, right? Like, are there ethical boundaries in rap beef? So I listened to that song and I had to get up And like take a couple laps around the living room because I was overwhelmed. I was like, "Oh my god!"
3: Kids, man.
5: And oh, it was the kids. It was he talked about his friend who had MS, and I was like, "Ooh, ah!" And it was it was so it was a lot. Oh yeah, that was terrible. But then so I was like, "Man, like did he go too far?" I don't know. What does this mean? But then I went back and listened to like a bunch of other diss tracks throughout history. Like I listened to "Hit 'Em Up," which is Pops diss track against Biggie, and you know though I cannot repeat the things that were said on that track on this family-friendly pod, <laughs> but I was like, okay, well, maybe the historical precedent around hip-hop beef is actually that there are no boundaries and no lines, and you can say wild things, and that's just and that's just how it goes, but we should talk about Puerto Rico. Uh, and so there was a big Harvard study that came out uh, last week that showed that at least Uh, 4,645 deaths could be linked to Hurricane Maria and its immediate aftermath. And that's about 70 times more than the official count, which was just 64. And I think everybody knew kind of intuitively that, like, 64 was not a number that actually reflected... devastation that we saw and and really continue to see um, in Puerto Rico. But uh, this is, again, really important empirical evidence and and the first study of its kind that's been done since the hurricane. And so it is important to note that the harvest study has a wide margin of error. But even at the low end of the range, the death count from Maria would place the disaster on par with the devastation of Katrina. Um, And so even at its lowest estimate, it is still as bad, if not worse, than Hurricane Katrina was, which is one of the worst disasters of certainly our generation and and, in sort of modern American history. And one of the interesting things was that one of the experts who conducted the study talked about how the toll could actually even be higher than they're estimating now if adjusted for the fact that uh, many of the people who died— died alone and, and could not be surveyed. Um, and so so what it does more than anything is sort of open up uh, a conversation and, and some more potential research opportunities to, to explore what is one of the worst natural disasters in the history of this country. Um, but it unfortunately has not been treated as such. Um, what the Watchdog Media Matters found is that uh, they calculated the cable news networks and the time they spent covering Roseanne Barr and her tweet um, and the—what was happening in Puerto Rico, and they covered Roseanne's tweet 16 times as much as the death of U.S. citizens in Puerto Rico. Um, And and what's also interesting to think about is um, the way in which, rightfully, I think so many of these outlets— called what Roseanne did racist and how quickly they were to label it as such, which I think is really important because I think, you know, we have a history and not even history, people continue to talk about things as racially charged, racially insensitive, da da da. But I think on this front, people were like, this is very much racist. And yet we failed to talk about Puerto Rico in a similar sort of, uh, racialized context, right? Like people kind of, um, talk around it, if they talk about it at all. And and it really reflects the idea that we're comfortable talking about individual actions and comments and uh, epithets as racist, but we don't—we continue to fail to talk about systemic and structural issues as racist, and um, so it's interesting, right? You know, I think Roseanne is—what uh, she said was horrific and, and deserved to be talked about, but the fact that it was talked about 16 times more than— 4,600 people being killed um, who were United States citizens is—and even if they weren't citizens, regardless—that that this many people were killed and and that this wasn't the first thing and the most uh, important thing that these folks—these cable news outlets were talking about is is really disheartening.
4: Not only in terms of scale is this so off the charts in terms of a disaster, you mentioned Clint, how even the lower bound estimates are you know at or above the number of deaths in Katrina. Um, but sort of the, the estimate that, they, that that we've seen uh, of almost 5,000 people uh, being killed in, in, in Puerto Rico you know is, is higher than 911 would rank it at the highest, if not, you know, one of the highest uh, death tolls of, of any single disaster in US history. Um, But what I'm most uh, sort of frustrated about, not only was the fact that the media wasn't covering it as much, but also that there's been absolutely no comment, there have been no questions answered by Trump or the Trump administration, right? So I haven't seen Trump answer the question uh, in terms of what has happened since that report came out, in terms of how that reflects on the comments that Trump himself made about these issues, Uh, downplaying the death toll. You know, we saw a video of him saying, you know, this is, um, he was citing, I think at the time, there was a figure of 64 uh, deaths. uh, And he was saying how, you know, that was so much better than Katrina, and using that as a way of, sort of giving himself props. And then, of course, we learned that that, that death toll was a lie. Um, but I haven't seen him respond at all, right? I haven't seen this White House respond. And I think when something like this happens, uh, there has to be an expectation across the board, across the entire sort of media landscape uh, and the country at large, that there is some sort of Number one, that there are questions being asked immediately about it. Number two, that there's an expectation that those questions will be answered, and that there'll be a, a sincere and diligent investigation as to what happened, uh, where you know mistakes were made, and, and as we saw, you know at the time it, it was pretty clear that that the Trump administration was not prioritizing Puerto Rico and its response. Uh, and so we need to be able to tease out, you know, how many of those deaths uh, were specifically due to the fact that the this administration did not respond as diligently as it could have or should have, uh, and what type of accountability needs to happen as a consequence because of real people's lives, real families, and an entire uh, population that has been impacted.
3: Yeah, you know, when I um, did Pod Save America live from Radio City um, two weeks ago, we were each asked to bring a piece of news that had been going underreported um and this is exactly what i brought this was before we had the harvard study about the death toll being 70 times and let's be very clear 70 times what we had previously been told um which should make us continue to question the veracity of this administration um but even before we found out about this harvard study we um were ignoring the consistent Issues and problems that the island was continuing to face in the wake of Hurricane Maria are Collective consciousness had moved on And Sam, you're absolutely right that this administration Has failed to protect The lives of American citizens um, In Puerto Rico um, Following this hurricane, but we also have to Blame ourselves, right, that as a collective Unit, we have allowed this conversation To rest, we have allowed Puerto Ricans to go without The support and attention that they uh, Deserve, um, in the wake Of lots of things, right, and so in The last few months alone um, We have had people People who are running for office in Florida say that Puerto Ricans who come to Florida who um, are, are fleeing from um, the devastation should not be allowed to vote. We have folks who um, still are living without power. Um, and, you know, Hurricane Maria was last hurricane season, and we're already about to enter the next hurricane season.
1: Yeah, I, just th- I think about two things. One is uh, as soon as the Democrats come in control, there needs to be a hearing about the government response because I'm sure that there are so many things that we don't know. So many underreported impacts and effects that need to be discovered, and not just by well-meaning professors, but by the government. Uh, the second is, you think about all the people who had medical care interrupted because of the hurricane, like, who just couldn't get to a doctor days later or months later, who like couldn't get their medicine, who couldn't access care, or their care was disrupted and how Clinton said we're probably undercounting those people. The third though is that there's this quote from an activist uh, who leads uprose, a Latino organization in Brooklyn, uh, who was protesting around the lack of coverage in Puerto Rico. And I think it's like the best quote. She says, "If there were five, if it were five thousand kittens, there would be outrage. If it was five thousand dogs, there would be outrage. If it was five thousand blonde-haired, blue-eyed women, there would be outrage." And I think in so many ways that that is true, that this is like not only gone underreported in the media, the government has just sort of like turned its eye, that private citizens are leading like food distribution, money distribution, like they're helping the local government there. But it's a lot of philanthropists and, like, private citizens who see it as their responsibility. And the reality is, like, we pay taxes for a reason. And, like, the money sort of goes to the government that's supposed to have some sort of responsibility to the common good. And it just hasn't happened in this case. And I, when I read her quote, like, if it was 5,000 kittens, there'd be outrage. It's like, that is true. I think people would be appalled. But when it's 5,000 brown people, it's it's sort of just like another day in America. And that can't be okay.
4: So my piece of news is an article coming out of the East Bay Express, and it's looking at a district attorney race in uh, Alameda County, which is Oakland in California. So California is having their primary elections this Tuesday, uh, June 5th. So if you're in California, make sure you show up. A lot of important uh, positions will be uh, on the ballot, things like state legislative, uh, elections, Congress, uh, district attorneys, and as we know, with district attorneys, that is one of the most important positions in the criminal justice system, uh, and uh, one of the most important levers of change uh, when thinking about criminal justice reform. Everything from uh, things like cash bail and pol- and holding police accountable, for instance, of police violence, uh, to you know reducing uh, the how people are charged, the extent to which they're charged, the sentences that they uh, get because of how they're charged, um, all of those things can be controlled by district attorneys. And what we're seeing right now in California are a number of district attorneys who are being primaried, uh, who uh, are being defended by police unions. And so in this case, in Alameda County, uh, district attorney, the incumbent district attorney, Nancy O'Malley, Uh, is being defended by the Oakland Police Officers Association. And they put out this email blast criticizing her opponent, Pamela Price. So Pamela Price is a black woman, civil rights attorney, Oakland resident, uh, who has run on a platform of criminal justice reform uh, and police accountability. And the Oakland Police Officers Association puts out this email blast criticizing her, saying she'll be soft on crime uh, and all these things. And what's particularly interesting about this is that you can actually find out the name of the email list that they sent it to. Uh, and that email list is called, Oakland, likely November 2018 emails, no AFAM, no African-Americans. So you can actually see that they are intentionally excluding African-Americans from their email blasts, uh, intentionally focusing on you know non-black voters uh, as a strategy of ginning up votes to keep an existing district attorney in office and prevent a black woman from becoming district attorney and uh, in doing so, uh, actually have somebody there who's interested in police accountability. Uh, And I bring this up because this is just one of uh, many different instances in California and across the country that we've seen of police unions uh, using their influence to sort of preserve the status quo, to prevent People who are running for office or are already in office that want to hold the police accountable, that want to actually use their platform for change, preventing them from doing that using a variety of methods. You know, this email blast is one example, uh, but they also play a huge r- role through other means in elections, in particular through campaign contributions where, you know, we recently released a report at checkthepolice.org California, where we actually looked at California specifically and found out that 118 out of the 120 members of the California state legislature have received campaign donations from police unions, those who vote against or do not vote at all for uh, police reform bills, receive the most money from police unions. Uh, And in these district attorney races that we're seeing across the country, many of those district attorneys themselves have received a lot of money from police unions. So uh, in this case, Nancy O'Malley uh, in Alameda County, up for election this Tuesday, has received $56,000 from police unions and associations and uh, police-affiliated groups uh, since 2012. Similarly, we've seen in Riverside County in California, uh, Michael Hestron, also up for reelection as a district attorney, has received $440,000 from police unions and associations since 2012. Uh, and then, most notably, Anne Marie Schubert, who is the district attorney in Sacramento uh, where Stefan Clark was killed, uh, has received $446,000 from police unions, associations and uh, police-affiliated groups uh, over that time period, including Uh, a whole bunch of money, tens of thousands of dollars, uh, right in the immediate aftermath of uh, Stephon Clark being killed by Sacramento police. So this is definitely something to turn out for uh, this Tuesday, making sure that we're electing uh, district attorney candidates who actually care about reform, who actually care about holding the police accountable, who are not uh, tied to the police unions in terms of campaign contributions and other influence. Um, And this is our opportunity to do that, not only in Alameda County, uh, where Pamela Price is running and uh, could be that candidate, but also in places like San Diego, where Genevieve Jones Wright is running um, another black woman on, on a platform of reform, uh, there as a district attorney, uh, and then of course unseating folks like, uh, Anne Marie Schubert, uh, who have been corrupt for too long.
3: You know, I always love it when people make their... <laughs> Make their racism transparent instead of opaque, Sam. (laughs) Especially when you've got no AFAM in capital letters uh, at the end of the distribution list title. Um, So I know exactly who you're talking about uh, and who you do not want to see the messages that you are sending out. You know, I think it's interesting, um, and I'm thankful for our collective evolution on this. I remember when we first launched Campaign Zero, a lot of people took issue with our 10th policy platform uh, being... um, around police unions and ensuring that they um, are fair and just and are not standing in the way of equity and justice for communities um, in so many ways that they are. And the subversion tactics um, that many police unions have been pursuing in this country are really hurtful and damaging, uh, and yet people have been unwilling to question their practices whatsoever uh, simply because they are a union. And I believe in collective bargaining. As I said before, was a member of the Washington Teachers Union, and those protections are really critical. But those protections can't come at the expense of the citizens that have been harmed um, by, by people in your profession. Uh, and so there has to be a balance there. Um, and I think over and over again, Again, we keep seeing police unions in particular subverting what justice looks like, um, whether it is when a police officer um, harms someone in a community or kills someone or it engages in police violence, all of the ways that police unions protect them from being questioned or prosecuted properly um, to, as you're pointing out, Sam, the ways in which police unions exert influence um, in political campaigns, um, um, outsized influence and often influence that is going um uh, not unseen uh, and, and happening undercover, um, which is exactly what they're depending on. So, Sam, I'm glad that you brought this up, and I hope that we will pay close, close, close attention to how police unions are behaving in our own communities, because there really is an opportunity for us to uh, shine a light on those things, put up a magnifying glass to those practices, and actually call out the things that we see that are happening that are unfair.
5: Yeah, this is really important and, and I think it's another opportunity to just talk about and quickly how important district attorneys are I mean this is around a district attorney race and and it's been fascinating to watch over the last several years the to watch the focus of mass incarceration shift um, from sort of you know spaces uh, of, of almost mythology around what causes mass incarceration whether it's private prisons or whether it's nonviolent drug offenses and things like that to to a more... Uh, accurate and and uh, holistic understanding of what causes mass incarceration to perpetuate itself, um, and and like we've talked about before, you know, when we had mandatory minimums. Uh, The idea was to get rid of discretion from judges, but what happened is we didn't get rid of discretion, we just kind of moved discretion from judges to prosecutors, and now we're at a point where around 95% of criminal convictions are resolved through plea agreements, right? So it's not people going to court, it's not people going to trial, it is people uh, who—in which the prosecutor sort of has all of the power and presents someone with— a sort of ultimatum, like, you know, even if you didn't commit this crime, even if they're innocent, you can, you're, if you go to trial um, and you have a flimsy, a flimsy defense, you might spend the rest of your life in prison, or you can take this plea deal and you'll spend the next 10 years in prison. Um, and I think, you know, until you are in that room and until someone is presenting you with the prospect that for something you, didn't do, or even for something that you did do, that you will spend the rest of your life in prison, um, as compared to, you know, five, 10, 15 years and, um, being incarcerated. I think it's when we're not in that situation, we can tell ourselves like, if I'm innocent, I'm going to fight it and go to trial. But, uh, when the possibility, the very real possibility that you will lose, um, is sitting right there in front of you, I think, uh, Many of us, as many people do, will accept the the lesser sentence even when it's not warranted. And so, you know, this that's just another reminder of why these races are, are so important in the first place.
1: Yeah, we are broken record about the police unions, and it's good that poli- people are now starting to pay attention a little bit more. But as much as we talk about it, there are so few people that will just stand up and disagree with police officers. Like, there's just so few electeds that will do it. There are so few reporters that actually do, like, incisive stories around policing outside of, like, an individual incident of police misconduct. But, like, you think about how many people there are like, whole reporters devoted to education who just write about schools, like, every single day, regardless of whether there's a scandal or not. But policing, it's still sort of this space that people only write about it when there's, like, some horrific murder in— not actually addressing like the structural and institutional things that just don't work all across the country. We've ceded so much to this idea that the police are the only thing uh, keeping safety in communities. And, you know, I live in Baltimore. I'm from Baltimore. I think about all the damage that they've done to actually create conflict. And that's not like an emotional response. That is like a trial that just ended where the police were found guilty of massive corruption. It's like, we just got to figure out how to talk about it in a way that isn't only around tragic events and that actually makes the police like account especially the unions account for the way they interact so we talk about the money we talk about the contracts we talk about the wild statements that they put out and the last thing is i, I was just reading another statement from a police department in another city but this is there have been a couple cities that have released statements being like you know what, like, if you're upset with the resisting arrest charge, you should just comply and then file a complaint later. And it's like, that's such a joke. We know that the complaints go nowhere. And that actually, like, doesn't ever lead to anything. That they want us to live in a, like, a literally a police state where, like, the police can just do whatever they want unfettered. And that just can't be what we think democracy is.
3: So Alexi McCammon over at Axios recently reported on just how slighted Black women candidates are feeling by the Democratic Party. I mean, we've talked a lot about the importance of Black women to the Democratic base. Um, Obviously, I talk about it a lot on my platforms, totally out of (laughs) self-interest. And to be clear, out of interest for all of us, because we have often seen black women who are willing to be more progressive, more active, more involved um, than other people. Um, And that information bears out in the stats. Black women are legitimately the most reliable voters out of any racial or gender subcategory. Black women are always showing up, and we um, overwhelmingly vote for progressive candidates and progressive issues when we do show up. Um, 98% of black women voted for Doug Jones versus 34% of white women who voted for him. Um, Of course, that was Less than the fifty plus percent that voted of white women that voted for Trump, but we're still seeing a real issue here. That said, there are 43 Black women who are running for House seats in this next election cycle, and only one of them, Lauren Underwood, who is running in Illinois, has the backing of the National Democratic Party. Um, and so what does that mean? That means that we are not going to see a real shift in the number of Black women and women of color who are occupying seats in Congress. There have only been 67 women of color in Congress since 1964, Patsy Mink, who is third generation generation. generation Japanese American, was elected to Congress uh, in 1964 from the 2nd District of Hawaii. And since then, only 66 other women have joined her. Um, Currently, there are 19 Black women in all of Congress only one in the Senate, as we know. And yet the Democratic National Party continues to call Black women the backbone of the party. So if we're so much the backbone of the party, why are you not backing us when we decide to move from being voters to candidates? Now, obviously, identity alone should not be a predictor as to whether or not someone gains your support. Their policy should match yours. Their um, integrity, their character should be something that you admire and respect. And yet we still know that even with those Um, requirements black women should certainly uh, be far more represented in the candidates that the party um, is supporting nationally so i think about women like lucy mcbath who is the mother of jordan davis and a gun rights advocate who is currently entering a runoff for a house seat in georgia i think about people like lauren underwood i also think about people like Stacey abrams who wants to be and should be the nation's first black woman governor in 2018 so I'm just wondering what it's going to take for the Democratic Party to take Black women as seriously as Black women seem to be taking our future and everyone else's.
5: So Brittany, I'm glad you sort of mentioned the, um, the rates at which women of color and Black women uh, exist in, in these um, federal positions. And, and you mentioned some of them, but I think it's worth kind of looking at the full picture of this, right? So there's never been, ever, a Black woman president. There's never been— A black woman governor. Kamala Harris is only the second ever black woman in the history of the Senate. And only 39 black women in the entire history of Congress have ever served in the House of Representatives. And some people might hear 39 and be like, oh, that's actually not that bad. It's better than two, it's better than zero. But when you consider the fact that in the history of the House of Representatives, there have been 10,273 people. Thirty-eight is 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 beyond minuscule, right? And so I think that that's a, a helpful frame to carry into this, and to to for folks to sort of grapple with as we, you know, try to reconcile the fact that Black women again are the single most consistent voting block in the Democratic Party, and are vastly underrepresented with regard to what they provide and offer uh, the party as a whole, and so. Um, when i kind of sat and looked at looked at those numbers and uh it really it really became more uh evident and more striking how uh, how far there is to go and that you know you know we'll be crossing our fingers for Stacey abrams but um she'll only be the first black woman governor in the history of this country, and that's uh both something something to celebrate and something to uh be concerned about
4: yeah, it's wild and you know not only does it show up in terms of who is getting supported by the party to run for office, but also in terms of who the party itself, you know, reaches out to and, and appeals to in the first place. And I think those are both interconnected, but this reminds me of an article that I read uh, this past week about Florida, uh, where you have, you know, Bill Nelson, a uh, Democratic senator, is running against uh, the governor of Florida, Rick Scott, Uh, for that Senate seat. It's one of the most hotly contested uh, Senate races Uh, this November. It might decide who controls the Senate. And yet, you know, when they asked Bill Nelson, who's been there forever, by the way, uh, you know, what's his plan to motivate uh, black voters? He said, I don't think I have to get them motivated. That's the quote. Uh, And he said that the amendment to restore voting rights will get them motivated for me. And so he doesn't, like, motivating black voters is not something that he thinks he has to do. Um, and so I think these are both interconnected, right? You have uh, folks who have been there forever, who are still in office, and who the Democratic Party continues to support, instead of uh, what are often younger black uh, black women who are running for office who are you know not only motivating and inspiring and and actually proposing agendas for creating change um, but who would also be able to appeal to and motivate a, a broader constituency to win the election who are not getting supported and meanwhile the party continues to invest in sort of the old guard who, doesn't even really have a plan to motivate black voters. Uh, And then, of course, after the election, wonders why uh, black turnout uh, didn't exceed their expectations.
1: You know, I was on the DNC transition team. I believe in the party like in general, but I don't know if the party believes in me. You know, we are voting for the party out of necessity because the alternative at the major party level is just so wild, like they don't think you should exist, so that doesn't seem like much of an option. But soon, I think we're going to start seeing a different way of organizing that literally will just take over the party. So no longer will it be sort of pushing for the party to recognize uh, we will actually be the leadership in the party. And I think that that might be the change. But it's getting hard. I think about that Blue Labs matter bill that they support. And you're just like, who are you know, if we don't vote, you'll never win. Like without us, they're literally you will never, ever win but you got to actually like speak to us and you know i don't know if my love for the party is like reciprocated in their actions and i think this is you know your news just made me think about that too so my news is an article entitled seniors are more conservative because the poor don't survive to become seniors and like i just i had never even thought about that like we talk a lot about like what does it mean that the older people are the most conservative and like You know, anecdotally, these are the people watching Fox News, even though actually a lot of young people are watching Fox News, which, you know, is frightening in its own way. But literally, poor people just aren't growing old. And I, like, hadn't—I just hadn't thought about that. What the article talks about—there's a study that came out— and that was featured in the Washington Post's Monkey Cage blog. And one of the things they say, I'll just read it, it, says, "...political participation of the poor is overall lower because of poverty, bad health, and many other factors, but millions of impoverished Americans across the country also die prematurely. For instance, in 2015, research funded by the NIH and the Social Security Administration revealed that since 1990, among the bottom quarter of Americans with the least education, life expectancy has either stagnated or decreased." That's for well over 40 million people. You know, we talk a lot about poverty and the disparities. But in some ways, it's like also a political calculation that, like, if they don't get older, they can't vote you out. And I just thought I'd bring that here to be a part of the conversation because it was something that I hadn't considered before.
3: I remember when I was younger and I heard— One of my elders say, you know, I see why they say you get more and more conservative as you get older. And I'm pretty sure they were talking about like a rap song they didn't understand. But that phrase always stuck with me, right? Because when your elders say something, it sticks with you. And I just thought that that was wisdom of people who've lived a little longer and had a little bit more life experience. But so often the things that we just treat as a foregone conclusion actually have are are concepts that have never been interrogated. And once you interrogate this, it makes absolute sense because if you are living in poverty, then you have a shorter life expectancy. And if you are simply not here to be counted amongst senior citizens or seasoned saints, as we like to call them, um, then your politics are not going to be reflected. reflected in the kinds of uh, mindsets that are built about older voters. Uh, And so when I read this, I was like, well, of course, that makes perfect sense, but we just literally hadn't interrogated that idea before. I had never interrogated that idea before, that you somehow become more conservative as you get older. Um, And I think it's really important because it feels like we're in an era where a lot of those foregone conclusions, whether they be based on some of the problematic research that we talked about last week um, when we were talking about the supposed uh, 30 million word gap, or um, the marshmallow test, which I had recently read about, um, that, has, that has since been debunked, um, we're in a time now where we are interrogating those things that everyone just kind of thought to be true um, and accepted as true. And I think that we need to continue in that vein. Um, and, you know, when, when we think about th- those things that we were told as we were growing up, were those pieces of research in our field that we were always taught to believe without question, to interrogate those things over and over and over again. Yeah,
5: you know, whenever I, I see studies like this that that talk about the, the increased mortality rate of those living in poverty, I'm just reminded generally, and, and again, it's one of those things that we talk about on the pod all the time. Um, but I'm just reminded how almost inexplicably difficult poverty is to escape, and that it goes so far beyond any of the mythology that if you simply work hard you can escape from poverty and um, like I, I again we fail to account for all of the ways in which being poor further reifies your status as a person living in poverty, whether it's from like from day one, like your access to the good schools, your access to nutrition, uh, f- the, your ability to plan for the future. Like how do you apply for college if no one in your family has done it? Your access to internships and and jobs, you know, where some people are connected to folks they know, um, or folks that their parents know for their first job opportunity, um, And, you know, access to to safety nets, you know, parent, when you go off, your parents can subsidize your, your rent, or they can send you some extra money if you find yourself in the hole, or if you get laid off, you know, you can go live with your parents until it's all said and done. And even the things like, uh, you know, the different aspects of our financial system, um, you know, overdraft penalties, payday lenders, student debt, uh, all of these disproportionately impact low-income folks. You know, it, it is just something that's always important for us to keep at the forefront of our minds because we live in a world that continues to tell us directly and indirectly that people are poor uh, because they've done something wrong. And, and I think it is helpful as a sort of empathic exercise to remember that so many of us are just kind of one accident or one terrible thing happening in our lives away from uh, being in a much more difficult Financial situation than we are, and that if that is the sort of perpetual state under which you exist, then your lifespan is going to be a lot shorter.
6: That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People.
1: Don't go anywhere, there's more to
6: come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 And use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all,
1: the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from... Work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, betterhelp.com slash people.
0: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. You can live out your master chef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com.
6: You can do this when you Angie that.
1: And here we go with Representative Yvette Clark. Congresswoman Clark, we're excited to have you here on Pate of the People today. Thank you for having me, DeRay. I'm so excited to be here with you. Now, for those that don't know, what uh, what's your district? Who do you represent? Where do you represent? So I represent the heart
2: of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, it's a community in which I was born and raised, and so it's a labor of love for me. And just to give folks a sense of the boundaries, uh, I start at the Barclay Center, which is Good. Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, somewhat downtown-ish, yep. but then my district moves south
1: all the way to a community called Sheepshead Bay. Now, I wanted to say I was excited to talk to you. I was nervous at first because I was like, what was her vote on this? But you are one of the few people that did not vote for the Protect and Serve Act, the Blue Lives Matter bill, one of 11 people in the House that didn't vote for it, which is sort of wild to the activists. We were like, well, this seems sort of simple that people wouldn't vote for this, but you didn't vote for it. So I'd love to talk to you about what led to that decision and 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 into the why do you think you were in the vast minority in that one?
2: You know, I, I you know, I've I've begun having conversations with colleagues on the floor about um, their thoughts. What I can tell you about mine is that I'm very attuned to uh, police and community relations, and I'll tell you why. Um, this is a battle that has been going on uh, to, to strike the balance or create the dynamic for. Policing that takes into account the humanity of people of color. And I'm going to say black people, because I grew up in a, in a very strong black community. And when I was a child, uh, there was a young man who was gunned down in the precinct in which I reside. His name was Randolph Evans. Mm. And I was a child at the time, but I remember. He was gunned down by the police. By the police, I'm sorry, by the police uh, in uh, the 71st precinct. Okay. And I remember the outrage in the community, the tears being shed, just the shock of it. Um, and. I remember my parents, I told you I grew up in an activist household, mm-hmm. we decided we were going to join a protest. Uh, they did, and me being a kid, I was like, I'm, I'm going, you know? <laughs> and I was, my father uh, did work that required that he wear a construction helmet. Okay. He was a, uh, a planner for the Port Authority. And so I remember going out with my parents, my father putting me on his shoulders and putting this construction cap. On my head as the masses descended on this precinct. Fast forward, I went to Oberlin College on a Randolph Evans scholarship. Oh wow! And to know that throughout my lifetime, I'm five decades decades on the planet now. Right? Um, this has been a protracted struggle for so many in our community. Um, I know that there has to be something done to truly get to the root of the dehumanization of black people in communities and that the police have a role to play in 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 changing this dynamic. And so I don't want to in any way uh indicate that I believe that all police officers are bad cops, you know by no stretch of the imagination. But what I would say to you is that we all need to play a role in identifying those officers that are likely to do harm to those that they were—they've pledged to protect and serve. And so, I didn't want to uh, vote for something, knowing what I know, having experienced what I experienced, that tacitly uh, gives any indication that I'm I'm pleased with the way that my community is being policed.
1: I like that. Now, I want to talk about ICE, too, is that ICE, mm. uh, you know, seems to be wrecking havoc on communities across the country. I know that you are a child of immigrants. So wanted to know is, you know, as an insider, is our impression of ICE, the havoc that it's wrecking, is it real? Is it hy- Is this hyperbole? And, like, what do you think the solution is? I
2: I, I will say this to you, that it's real, right? It's real for those families that experience separation. It's real for those families that— uh, are, are suffering with anxiety right now because they live in blended families where, you know, um, someone is receiving DACA, someone uh, is is uh, a legal resident of the United States, and someone is undocumented, someone's a citizen. It's real uh, because we're seeing families torn apart in the 21st century in ways that have— historically been um, uh, one of the greatest tragedies about a nation that says that it uh, values uh, families, right? Uh, When I think about the fact that um, the black community in particular have had to live with this tearing apart of of, of families since uh, days of enslavement. And you think about all of the laws that have been put in place uh, that have stripped fathers from living with their children, whether it's you know, public housing rules, uh, you know, welfare uh, rules. Uh, this is a continuum of that. Uh, it, it's taken on a different shape. Um, and it's targeting uh, a a sort of a hybrid population, but at the end of the day, it's the same thing. And so, uh, I do have a problem with the way that uh, ICE is being utilized uh, to forward an agenda that uh, dehumanizes individuals, that takes away from them any opportunity to make things right Uh, with uh, their community, to legalize their status, uh, particularly those who pose no threat uh, to our society, but are adding in so many ways. Well, what we can do is we can change this Congress. You know, we can uh, make sure that uh, we uh, hold our elected officials accountable for uh, providing recognition of of human dignity and um, bringing our immigration system into the 21st century, right now we're dealing with a hodgepodge of, um, of immigration components, as I put it, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the Trump administration has been tearing away at that fabric, at a broken system to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. The system has been broken for quite some time now. Um, and it is our responsibility to determine as a nation how we will affect immigration in this country and what that impact is globally, because our nation is a nation built by immigrants for immigrants. Now, some, of course, came under horrible conditions uh, as slaves. Um, Others have come uh, seeking refuge. Others have come seeking opportunity. But all in all, we've come here, and we have to give recognition to that and what it has done to build a very strong nation.
1: Now, a lot of people don't know that in the 2009 House Appropriations Bill, there's a clause that requires ICE to detain a minimum of 35,000 people a day. Uh, <laughs> do you think that we can ever undo that clause? Like, oh, what's the, absolutely. What's the holdup?
2: Absolutely. Well, the holdup is a House of Representatives that's in disarray run by Republicans that are infighting. Right now, we're going through an implosion in the House of Representatives. And the Democrats, we're holding the line on the values that the American people have. But we don't have the bully pulpit. They have a supermajority in the House right now. They're infighting. Right now, the farm bill went down.
1: Which is good. Explain, Which was extremely Explain what that means good. to people who don't know. Right. We talked about it a little bit on the pie, but explain there was Okay, so the
2: there was a farm bill that came to the floor of the House about a week ago that uh, changed uh, the way that we administer our Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, known as SNAP, commonly known as uh, Food Assistance Welfare Food Stamps, uh, and would have— basically enslaved individuals who receive those benefits by making them have to work uh, to earn food on their table, food to feed their children, food to keep uh, life-sustaining
1: for seniors. And why is the work requirement bad for people who don't understand why it's bad? So the the
2: work requirement is bad because right now there are people with disabilities who can't work. There are children who— can't work, there are adults who can't work. Um, those who can work are looking for employment opportunities that in a, a, a city like New York, where the cost of living is astronomical, are finding it hard to find uh, jobs with the wages mm-hmm. that keep up with their cost of living. So now, if you mandate work, you're saying that, um, you know, you have the means, the opportunity, the avenues to attain that. And if you don't, oh, well. You know, we can't have people starving on the streets of America because these individuals are short-sighted in recognizing what's happening in the lives of Americans who are struggling.
1: And one of the questions that we ask uh, everybody, there are two questions. One is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you?
2: Hmm. Wow. Are you allowed to use um, four-letter words?
1: Whatever you—this well, okay. this is, this is yours. This okay, is, I, I— The family I, maybe podcast. I, maybe, maybe, but, maybe I better not. But, uh, well, uh,
2: stay true to myself. You know, stay true to myself. Um, uh, you know, remember those core values that um, my family came with when they came to the United States of America um, and raised us with. Uh, don't forget to whom I belong um i always remember you know my district is is extraordinary there are a lot of reasons why i do the work that i do but most of all it's the people that i represent and you know it's a diverse constituency i'm going to i'm going to say that my core comes out of the fact that my parents moved to this district when there weren't many black people living here right and and they told me that you know in the span of a couple of months once they moved there you know, white folks start moving out, right? And more and more waves of immigrants began to move in from the entire Caribbean region, from the continent of Africa, from Asia, you you name it, you know, from from, um, around the world as Jewish immigrants, um, you know, from Pakistan, from Bangladesh. And all of these folks have something in common. They have a vision for the American dream. And they have done everything in their power to create, undergird communities in which there's a cultural exchange and a recognition of one another's humanity, and I was a beneficiary of that. And so, I know who I'm fighting for. Uh, I know who I'm legislating for. And my goal is to make sure that this next generation is, has access to— everything I had access to, and then some, because our society has morphed so much in terms of what's available to young people, uh, to senior citizens, that we owe it to them uh, to, to, to unfold it for them, to, to, to make sure that they have access. And, and that's, that's what this battle is for me. It, it, it's not uh, against my opponent. It's for the people of the Ninth Congressional District of New York.
1: When is the election? When is your election? Yeah. There's a
2: primary election taking place the last Tuesday of this month, June 26th. And so, I'm encouraging uh, those within the 9th Congressional District to please come out and vote. And I want to make sure that your listeners also know my official website, which is clark.house.gov. And that's Clark with an E.
1: My last question is, uh, there are a lot of people who have marched, called, emailed, protested, they've done it all, and they feel like the change isn't coming. Or the change hasn't come. What do you say to those people? I
2: say, get ready for the breakthrough. You know, once you become cynical, once you throw up your hands, you might as well concede to the enemy. My whole thing is I'm seeing movement like I haven't seen since I was a child in this nation. Like I said, I grew up— uh, at the end uh, of the civil rights movement, the height of the Black Power movement, that enabled me to get a quality education, a public school system in Brooklyn, New York, allowed me to then get a scholarship to go away to college. I know it's doable when people of right mind come together and stay the course. Don't become cynical. Understand their power right? You, you know, we've got power. We are not a powerless people. And to the extent that people want to throw up their heads, I say, you know, there, there will be those who will step up nonetheless because they know it's an imperative for the survival of people and the survival of our nation, the survival of democratic values. And I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it with millennials I'm I'm so excited about them, I'm telling right. you. It reminds me of when I was a kid and, and how we were groomed for activism. I'm really excited. I, I see it among, um, you know, activists of every stripe, whether it's the Women's March, it's the Science March, it's, you know, across the board. I put big value, the Parkland kids and what they're doing around violence. I mean, that's next, next gen, right? Right. So— I am not deterred by cynicism. Uh, I'm an eternal optimist, and I believe that, first of all, people can't live under oppression. They, they won't. You know, something within, something within them is always going to cause people to rebel, people to organize, people to move, because that suppresses who we are as self— who we are in terms of our self-esteem, how we think about our own humanity. So those who are enlightened and conscious of that are always going to find a way to change the status quo. And that's what's happening right now. It may not happen f- as fast as people would like, but it's happening. And, 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 I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm an instigator. <laughs> you know, I'm making like sure that we keep this going.
1: Well we continue a friend of the pod. Thank you for coming and can't wait to have you back. Thank you for having me, Deray. Cool. It's great. Thank you. And that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure you rate us wherever you get your podcast and I will see you back here next week.